There are three Republicans seeking to become St. Louis's next mayor, but only one of them appears to be actively campaigning for the post, and that's Andrew Jones. The business executive joined us on another edition of the Politically Speaking podcast to talk about his vision for the city and how he's standing out in a campaign dominated by the Democratic primary. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Reitens, Navy (laughs) SEALs running for governor. And I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is on assignment today, so we have as our special guest host... Rachel Lippman, also a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. And we have as our special guest in studio today... Andrew Jones, Republican candidate for mayor. I want to just thank you for being in the studio with us today. Uh, This will probably be our last interview with a melee for mayor candidate. Jim Osher, who's also running as a Republican for mayor did not respond to several requests for an interview. So we're saving the best for last, I suppose. We hope so. (laughs) So um, you might have heard a little bit of Mr. Jones at the St. Louis Public Radio 9 Network, St. Louis American uh, community community groups debate. But in case people didn't catch that debate, which I highly recommend that they do because the questioners were especially good. They absolutely were. (laughs) All of them from all of the different outlets. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself, your professional background, and and, and whether you've done anything political before. Well, to answer your um, last question first, no, zero, any inclusion at all with political background. Um, I was driven to do this because of the fourth part of our platform deals with civic excellence. And with civic excellence, my wife told me one day, you're doing a lot of armchair quarterbacking on the political front. And uh, you say that you have answers. Why don't you apply yourself? And uh, I've I've made this reference over and over that when you look at Aristotle and and read some of Aristotle's works, he talks about a civilization is only as good as its people, its citizens. So I took myself by the horn and said, hey, you need to get involved if you have something to to contribute. And so that's why I jumped into the platform. So what did you do before you became a official candidate for office? Or what do you do now? Because I don't think you've given up your livelihood to run for mayor. From No, I'm still, I'm still working at this present time. Uh, it's, it's a hard juggling act. I'm burning the candle at both ends. But right now I'm an executive vice president of business development and marketing for an electric utility out of southern Illinois. It's called uh, Southwestern Electric. We serve and we are an electric distribution company from Collinsville, Illinois, right out to Effingham, Illinois. <clears throat> And you are a, a, a in in a, you are around the Shaw neighborhood, correct? I don't remember what the official the botanical heights. Botanical heights, okay. So just sort of that neighboring eighth ward or nineteenth ward. That's the nineteenth ward. The nineteenth ward, okay. There's a there's a heated aldermanic race there, but I guess you're not going to vote in that because you're probably going to vote for yourself. I'll vote for myself in that. <laughs> so but I do. Well, there's uh, at least two I votes. do have a, I have a strong lean there, but I won't disclose it. Yeah, that's <laughs> one less vote for either Lindsey Patton or Marlene Davis. Right. I'm assuming possibly two if you can get your wife to vote for you too. Yeah, we're going to lean that way. I think I can twist. <laughs> so um, you, you are running as a Republican. The other person we had on the show, Andy Karanzev, while he is certainly a colorful character, has stated pretty flat out he's not a serious candidate, has actually suggested that people vote for you instead. So 
Um, have you been a Republican your entire life, or did you just kind of decide pretty recently that you were you were a member of the Grand Old Party? Well, I don't know initially if I wasn't a Republican back in 1980 when I was first able to vote for a presidential election. I was trying to get my feet on the ground to try to understand and uh, read a little bit more about Ronald Reagan. I heard a lot of negative things about him, and I read him, and, uh, and I was an economics major. And I said, boy, some of the things he's talking about make sense to me, and I read up more about the, um, the platform of the Republican Party. And I've leaned that way ever since. The reason I ask that is, you know, St. Louis is a heavily Democratic city, and sometimes Republicans actually run as Democrats in order to get ahead. And maybe in this instance where there's a, a crowded field, a Democrat would actually run as a Republican. But from hearing your views and from talking with you a little bit more, you're a real deal Republican. You're not a Republican in ballot name only. Is oh, that no, fair not to say? A, that is absolutely fair to say. I believe when you talk about the philosophy, when you talk about the platform, I think it's something that resonates with me and has always resonated with me. I think Ronald Reagan gets a uh, gets credit for saying this quite a bit, but my father, who was born in 1910 and had me in 1960, he was 50 years old. I used to be around a lot of older gentlemen, African-American gentlemen. And if you remember, African-Americans voted strongly Republican so. up mm-hmm. until about 1950, right when the Goldwater fiasco yeah, happened to some degree. 1964, and I actually believe that uh, the city of St. Louis municipal leadership was Republican for a long time. Yes. And, and 64 then, years, I think, was the last actual identified Republican yes. ran as a Republican mayor. Yes. So if you were to become the first Republican mayor in a very long time, uh, what would be kind of your main priorities and just what would be your basic vision for the city if you're in office? To make the city a beacon of civic excellence. I think that's the primary focus. And in order to get there, we have to follow a, a guideline a, um, a, and move into a certain trajectory and implement certain things, particularly when you talk about the very most fundamental thing that this city needs at this particular point in time is a reduction in violent crime. I think that is the primary thing that we're going to focus on. I think it's something that's doable and we can achieve that goal. So what do you I mean, when you say civic excellence, are you talking about people, institutions? What What is sort of um, dive into that phrase kind of a little bit for us? Civic excellence being people who are responsible for their citizenship, people and entities. When I say entities, I'm saying all stakeholders, businesses, anyone who's associated with the city of St. Louis to move them forward in a more responsible manner that they want to do everything possible to, in order to grow the city. As the rising tides rise, uh, raises all ships, I look at it from that perspective that we're going to move in that direction. So give me an example of where you think that the mayor's office, and it's a point you've made that it hasn't just been 16 years, but it's been whatever the time is. that 67. 67 years. Um, what, what do you, kind of for the mayor's office, what, what does that phrase mean to you? You know, doing everything that the city can, and, and how has this administration and past administrations, in your view, failed? Well, I'm looking at policy. When you look at policy, I believe that you're looking at taking positions that have not been fruitful nor have put in, been in a position where there's a fiduciary responsibility, lack of oversight, things of that nature that has put our city in the position that we are currently existing in, particularly when you talk about funding for stadiums, when you talk about uh, now asking for more police, but it was actually the alderman who voted on reducing the uh, budget for the police to reduce those numbers. Now they're coming back, circling back the wagon, saying that we need additional funds to bring these police back when you had an opportunity to have that going on a long-term concurrent uh, growth within the uh, personnel there. So you you talked about crime kind of on the outset. That's a question I think we we talk about first with all the candidates. What would be kind of your strategy to deal with violent crime, not only in North St. Louis, but also parts of South St. Louis? And it also flares up in downtown in the Central Corridor as well. 
Well, I, I think there's probably some peripheral growth that comes from it, but you have those primary areas, probably about 13 of those in the north side of the city, two in the southern side of the city. But I have talked about this from the very beginning, that most of those crimes can be connected to some level of narcotics involvement. And since that is the case, it made me investigate what is the narcotics division doing? What is the department doing? Found out that there's no narcotics department that specifically handles those particular issues. Rachel, is that true, first of all? Um, I believe it is. I've heard similar that there is no targeted narcotics unit or targeted special operations unit. I, I had to ask while. her because she, she is our, our designated police and crime reporter. Sort of. but, but continue, <laughs> so, sir. So then that in and of itself, I think, causes a problem. And, it, look, and you have to look at it and investigate how is it that if most of the problems that the city has as far as violent crimes are concerned are connected to that, how is it that we don't have a department specializing and dedicated to doing so? In my line of business, we are there to solve problems. And we have to focus on what causes those problems in order to solve it. Do you think that the, the immense concentrated poverty, both mainly in North St. Louis, but also parts of South St. Louis, contributes to the high crime rates in both those areas? Well, the high crime rates, I still divide those up. When you're saying those peripheral crimes, and I certainly I'm not diminishing those, burglary or any type of rape or any looting, all of that stuff can be, I think, lumped into one particular category where you take care of that with proactive policing. But we're talking about violent crime specifically. I'm saying that's targeted and probably more highlighted to the fact that they're tied to narcotics and we can do something about that separate from people being poor. Um, one of the, the uh, um, statements you made during the, the uh, mayoral forum a couple of weeks ago had or not a couple of weeks ago last week had to deal with um, your around stop and frisk policies. You emphasized that you could find a constitutional way to do stop and frisk. Um, explain that a little bit. What would you say say is a constitutional way to to do that? And how does it connect back to your overall issue here, which is the narcotics trade is driving a lot of this? Well, when you look at Terry stops or those stop and frisk. When the New York, when the city of New York were conducting those, they were doing things outside of constitutional policy. There are ways that the uh, the, um, the Supreme Court came back to say that these are the ways, and generally most policing agencies understand the policy-driven ways that you can stop people in order to determine whether or not they're up to no good. And those are the things that are constitutional. I am not talking about doing anything that hinges on people's constitutional rights. So that falls in line with the, I think what started the whole conversation was the um, James Q. Wilson's uh, broken windows concept. Because if you go to my website, andrewjonesformayor.com, you will find out that I implement all of those proactive measures in order to get rid of some of the crimes that I call on the periphery. So, I mean, there was a lot of pushback from the Democratic people on stage. They, 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 they kind of accused it as being a way to racially profile people. I, I know you responded on, on stage, but how did you react to that criticism and, and how do you rebut the idea that it's not a good policy? Well, initially, everyone said that it was not constitutional, but they were wrong. It is constitutional. You can stop and frisk as long as it's within the parameters. That's the point I was trying to emphasize. Now, if you have a problem saying that we are profiling, I think uh, Lewis Reed were talk was talking about profiling. Everyone in life, we profile to some degree, but you can't do it to the point where it becomes unconstitutional. I'm certainly for extending people's rights. I'm a constitutionalist, so I certainly don't want to do that. But there are ways that we can recognize those people that are more apt 
to commit crimes. Under a Mayor Andrew Jones administration, does does Chief Sam Dotson keep his job? Chief Sam, Sam Dotson keeps his job until I find out whether or not he's doing an adequate job or not. I just can't willy-nilly just go in and fire someone. Mm-hmm. First of all, it opens you up to lawsuits. And then again, that goes back to the policy question earlier. You'll lose money with that. And now you have to go back to the taxpayers to ask for additional monies. And that goes back to costs not being taken into consideration. So give me an example of a, a metric you might use to, to determine whether the chief's doing a good job. How would you sort of measure and say to him, these are, you know, the performance standards that you need to meet in an Andrew Jones administration? Under my administration, certainly we would have a collaboration of meeting of minds to determine what are those matrix that are necessary and what are the standard practices that are being utilized across the board, the benchmarks that are utilized across the board for all policing agencies to determine what are those best practices and determine whether or not he's meeting those matrix. And uh, if he's not meeting those matrix and he can't follow my edict on what I'm asking him to do with his charge, at that point we can talk about maybe dissolving the relationship. But I won't willy-nilly or just come in to try to cut people when I don't know if they're doing their job or not because leadership determines whether or not they're doing their job. Let's talk development, because this may be an issue where you found more favor with some of the Democrats on stage than than others. Uh, my my assumption is you've been kind of critical of the way the city has done the its development policies. First of all, is that a fair assumption? It's absolutely fair. So what would you do differently, and where do you think the city is going wrong Is it in terms of economic development policy? There are standard rules that you generally want to follow in negotiations, anything that you do. You don't want to lead with incentives, and it generally seems that I believe cities that are novices or who don't fare well in economic development, they leave with incentive packages when you're dealing with commercial and industrial customers. Now, we're talking about residential concepts. That's a total different thing, and I can justify that. But certainly what you want to do, and that is ground rule number one in economic development, don't lead with it. But they do it all the time, leading with it, because we want to be able to conduct a thorough quantitative analysis of the project, and even qualitatively, we want to be able to assess whether or not a a particular initiative makes sense at all to even entertain it. I'm going to steal what is Jason's usual sort of devil's advocate question here, and that's the idea that St. Louis as a as a city isn't operating in a vacuum. Does the idea of, you know, not leading with incentives put the city at risk of losing developments to a Chesterfield or a Maryland Heights or a Clayton where they are more willing to say, hey, we will offer you all of these incentives to come and locate your business or your uh, your commercial development here. But I don't know that they use those as their best practices in other cities. When you look at it regionally from southern Illinois to the uh, west side of the city, I think most of those organizations, those institutions, those municipalities, what they do is that they try to focus on selling the actual core base lines of the city. And from there, if we're close, and if they're close, they will look at implementing and offering some level of incentive and and incentives at the lowest levels. Now, you talked in in, in your previous, uh, you, you said, in, let me rephrase that. Earlier in the show, you, you seem to express a lot of skepticism about publicly funding stadiums. Kind of elaborate on why you don't feel that's a good idea. Well, I think um, if we have a fiduciary responsibility, in which we do, with taxpayers' funds, certainly there is an opportunity cost without getting deep into the economics, you know, economic study, because that is my background. But there's an opportunity cost with that money, and we have options with that money to put it into safe keeping and to utilize it, utilize it optimally. 
Right now, what's happening, they are throwing money out the window, so to speak, because they're getting involved with, with, uh, with projects that have no way of giving the return on investment that is necessary and even in the best safekeeping of a low-producing T-bond. It, one of the things I remember you mentioning at the at the forum is this idea that, you know, the city's overall economic development plan. If I remember correctly, you you don't think that we have an overall economic development plan. I've gone to the website. I've been looking for comprehensive plans to be able to review them so that I won't make misnomers or be incorrect in my positions against the city. I have not seen a comprehensive plan that the city has now. There are peripheral private partnerships that have plans, but we need something that the city is in absolute control of. So based on you've seen, you know, you've, you've lived in the city now for, for how 35 long? Years. For 35 years. Without sort of the inside knowledge that you would have in the mayor's office in terms of laws and policies, just what's your, you know, sort of armchair quarterbacking, as your wife likes to put it, co- comprehensive plan for the city? What would, what would it look like? What would sort of its, its broad outlines be? Well, I think it follows in our platform that we have right now where we talk about crime because I submit to humbly submit to everyone that nothing gets done in economic development without there being some level of order. Businesses are in business to make money. So when people are saying that we're going to just willy-nilly just bring businesses in, well, a business won't locate there if their personnel, their most valuable commodity for their business, feels unsafe. Nor if there are not enough people with productive backgrounds to be able to help them to make money. So we're going to have to establish order, and we establish that order first by eliminating that violent crime element. Now, one issue where you did seem to have a little bit of difference from the Democratic candidates was education. You Mm -hmm. were talking a lot about school choice as an option for people that live in the city. Tell me why you you have that philosophy and and also explain how you believe school choice, which is another name for vouchers, tuition tax credits, things that would allow people to go to a variety of different public and private schools would help the St. Louis public school system. Well, the baseline for that, I believe, is the fact that the free market will help dictate what's best for the children. Our greatest assets as parents, grandparents, and I do have grandchildren, are our children are our grandchildren. And what I want to do is fit our children with the best scenario for their growth and potential. Right now, currently, even though the city of St. Louis has a, and I like to call it, a provisional accreditation stamp at this particular point in time, they, they are still going to eventually sometime have to have an overall approval and they're going to have to be reassessed regarding that as well. So with that being taken into consideration, I'm saying the best scenario for young people to be able to get the best education for themselves, to open it up for competition, however you want to coin it. Do you say that because they have a special administrative board and not an elected elect, elected board? Because they they just received full accreditation from the State Board of, of Education. Yeah, that's the official designation. So it's I the official to... designation, but I still question it to some degree. Mm-hmm. Because even though people make official designations, I would like to read the nuts and bolts of what's going on with that full accreditation. And, and, and I will just note for our listeners, there have been other people that have made this argument that they look at the scores and the results and and even if it meets accreditation, there's still a whole lot of work to do. In this. Quite a bit. I just have to ask this, and I just want to make it clear I've asked all the candidates this. Where did you send your, your children to school? Did well, you s- to go into my background, well, we my grandson just went to the Monticeri School, mm-hmm. and he graduated from there. My children went to, and they're my stepdaughters. Mm-hmm. They went to uh, private school here okay. and public school. They went to Gateway, then they went to private school. Okay. 
I mean, was were those good experiences for them for what they ended up doing? Outstanding experiences, but we also got uh, achieved outstanding experiences when they went to parochial and private school as well. That, that, we saw leaps and outstanding growth when they went to those schools. Yeah, and I've asked that question to all the candidates, and I just want to make clear for our listeners: there are a lot of people in St. Louis that send their kids to parochial school because they're Catholic. They feel that the education system there is just the best for their kids, and. I'm not saying don't send your kids to private schools or charter schools. It's it's all up to you. I just have been mentioning this because I think that a big challenge is convincing people like me who are middle to upper class white people mm-hmm. to maybe invest more in the St. Louis public school system, which I just don't see happening right now. I see a lot of them sending their kids to charter or private schools for various reasons. It's your biggest investment, your children. You certainly want to give them the best opportunity for them to succeed. So I'm curious, as as mayor, with this idea for, you know, school choice and allowing the free market to work, what do you do given that the the mayor himself or herself doesn't actually have control over the school district? How do you kind of advance that free market philosophy as mayor? What's what's the role the mayor can play in education without that direct operational control? I think we hear the term quite a bit now, the bully pulpit of the mayor, to have those discussions, to uh, u- utilize my connections, to talk to the superintendent, to find out where we are. Because my real concern at this particular point in time, I think there are three key components that I would like to focus on, is to ensure that we have great infrastructure, which I think we do a phenomenal job there. We have great infrastructure with the school. I want to ensure that we have great curriculum and that the teachers are doing an outstanding job. And this is where I'll be able to utilize my bully pulpit is to have meetings, to talk with parents, to have stronger parental commitment, because I think that is the real driver that is prohibiting our children from moving to the area and the level that they need to get to. I want to talk city-county merger, because this is often an issue that a lot of Republicans disagree with Democrats on. What is your opinion on St. Louis becoming part of St. Louis County in some way, whether it be returning as a municipality or St. Louis and St. Louis County becoming a megacity, which has been kind of the idea beat to death almost by the Post-Dispatch? I think St. Louis is probably one of two major cities that's not connected with a county. Uh, and I, I think it puts us in a precarious and a, a particular scenario where we can utilize it at some degree, but right now we're not an attractive city. Mm-hmm. So when you look at a SWOT analysis, I always tell people when we do economic development, SWOT analysis applies to everything. When you look at the weakness, strengths, weaknesses, and opportunities and threats. Okay. And the weakness Thank component you, part You're of welcome. it, mm-hmm. most people embellish that weakness component part of it. And I look in the mirror at the city of St. Louis and say we're not an attractive par- partner. You can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. So So St. Louis County would have a lot to lose if they joined with us now. But what we're trying to do with small incremental steps with our health department, with the city city and the county, they do collaborative work. There are synergies there. We can start incrementally applying those types of concepts. And somewhere downstream, after we get stronger under my administration, we can look at that prospect and make a determination on whether or not it fits. Now, again, this is a question I've asked all the candidates. If someone like Rex Singfeld puts a statewide ballot initiative on the ballot deciding this issue as opposed to just letting the the residents of St. Louis and St. Louis County decide on it. And your mayor, what would be your posture? The people that are involved, some type of plebiscite or some type of referendum between the people that are involved. That means city and county people. Yeah, that's what I mean, because I think that there's been a lot of pushback that anybody besides the city and the county would decide this, because when local control went to the statewide ballot, it was arguably easier to pass because Mm -hmm. people in Nottoway County or Saline County don't care and they're going to vote yes. 
I envision a similar scenario occurring with the city county merger question, which is why I've been asking. But you you seem like city and county residents only in this situation. In this in this scenario, and there are other scenarios where you do need some level of state participation because again, even in education, when you look at the amount of money, tax money that comes to the city of St. Louis for education, a significant part of it comes from the state. Now, before we get into the political part, I want you to just give us any other issues you feel that you set apart from your Democratic candidates, because we've talked about issues that we've talked about with them. But as a Republican, you may have some different priorities and focuses that I want to give you a chance to talk about. Well, priorities and focuses, again, the number one thing at at this point in time is to establish some level of order, particularly in order in North St. Louis. And the one thing I would like to emphasize that I've talked about before and most people get away from it is that the overwhelming majority of people that live in North St. Louis are law-abiding citizens. They're being held prisoner there by this very small group of people. And we are there's a dereliction of our duty as officials, as stakeholders here that we can't lift them up so that they could be full participants in this system to be able to take care of workforce development. So that's one of my main initiatives is to deal to deal with workforce development, because once we can get people trained and experienced, they can get jobs that we can talk outside of minimum wage and talk about career wages. talk about the campaign. It's a little bit different than the Democrats we've had on because it's a three-way Republican primary and your two opponents don't really seem to be actively campaigning for it. The, the interesting thing is Andy Karanzev has some residual name recognition. He's on Twitter doing funny things. His restaurant is well known. Even though he's not a serious candidate, are you worried that he may win this Republican primary just because people know who he is? And that's why we're taking this thing seriously, because Mm -hmm. Jim Osher as well, a fine gentleman. I've met him multiple times, fine Mm -hmm. gentleman, but there may be some people that go in to vote who may not recognize my name Mm -hmm. or understand the work that I've done. And they'll say they'll go chronologically and look at it or any sequence and say, I'll pick the first name at the top of the ballot. Yeah. And that's kind of what I'm getting at. You are seriously campaigning for this office, whereas your two opponents don't seem to be. And clearly as a Republican, too, that as we mentioned at the outset, it is not, you know, I'm running because it'll give me a clear path to April. This is your political philosophy. Yeah. So what are you doing to make sure that you win this primary? Well, again, having having to show up at all of the neighborhood associations doing as best as we can with a shoestring budget because we're talking about boots on the ground and that's that's been very instrumental for other people to win outstanding races to boots on the ground and talking with people and we're getting a lot of influx of connections and a lot of influx of interest and advocacy across the board and I think we're going to surprise people because we're diligently working and talking with people about our platform and how we can help. I'm curious sort of looking at you know are, are you tapping into individuals who have identified as as Republicans or are you just sort of casting the widest net to, to see who you can can talk to? And as you are talking to these people, do they take you as seriously as you are taking your campaign? Like, do they sit there and say, yes, he is actually campaigning as a Republican and is seriously a Republican? Well, there's a lot of incredulity 
that exists out there when they find out I'm a Republican. And uh, but no, we're st- very strategic. I think if you listen to my platform and what I'm trying to achieve is that we do have strategy. We do have taxes that we're utilizing. And we certainly cast that wide net as well to talk about those who generally will not be connected with uh, Republicans. And I think you'll be present, uh, pleasantly surprised by the fact that there are a lot of people who are entertaining switching over. Well, that was what I was going to talk about, because St. Louis City is a heavily Democratic jurisdiction. But I think with that often stated fact, it often understates the fact that there actually are a decent amount of Republicans that live in St. Louis. I'm not saying there's enough necessarily to elect a citywide official. We'll find that out in April. But, for example, in southwest St. Louis City, I think over 40 percent of the 16th Ward voted for Donald Trump. Yes. If you look at the 23rd and 12th Ward, I don't think it got over 40, but I think it was in the 30s. -hmm. And a lot of those people have to decide now, do I vote for a person like you in the Republican primary or do I vote in the Democratic primary and have my my voice so heard in in that particular race. This has happened for a long time because there is no party registration in Missouri. What do you think is going to happen there, especially given that there is no deep south side candidate like Mayor Slay in the race and it's a wide open democratic contest? Well, I think we're going to be strong in the south. I think the 16th ward probably votes at a higher percentage than anyone any other ward votes. And I think we're going to get our fair share of Republican, entrenched Republican voters. I think we're going to get our fair share of those undecided. And I think, believe it or not, I really believe that there are a lot of frustrated Democrats out there who really want change because they could see the precipitous slide and they want to really entertain our campaign. There is an added variable in the 16th Ward, mm-hmm. which I talk about probably more than most other journalists. There is actually because a, he lives in the 16th Ward. <laughs> and, I, and I apologize if I mispronounce her name, but there is a Republican candidate for aldermen, Abigail Niebling. Niebling. And she's a legit serious candidate and whoever wins that Democratic primary is not a sure thing to win that race, given what I said before. So it's possible that since people know who she is, she's a business owner in 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 that neck of the woods, they may want to vote for her and they may have to vote in the Republican primary. And that's the highest turnout ward. Certainly. So this is why I'm bringing this up. Well, but so also much. she doesn't have a, a, pri- a Republican primary. She's the only Republican running. So they that's could true. still pull a Republican ballot in, in April for the municipal and not have to kind of weigh in on the. On the on the on the March ballot. Yeah. So and I know I know I know Abby real well. Yes. We've been doing uh, strategy sessions as well. (laughs) So we're trying to piggyback off of each other to grow grow this campaign. Yes. And as I said before, because of the demographics of the 16th Ward and the fact that it's a divided Democratic primary where there's going to be a loser and they may not be be happy. That may be one of the few aldermanic races in April that will be competitive. And, yes. and, in a general, yeah. In a general. And where else? I imagine, though, you've been going all over the city. You're not just concentrating your efforts where most of the Republicans live. Is no. that fair to say? That's fair to say. So, but we're, but we're, we've been more strategic in trying to ensure that we do not overlook our Republican base, Central Corridor, corridor and we're also expanding north. Because at this particular point, we think people are entrenched with their candidate, but we're certainly trying to court them after the uh, April election. Without going too much, obviously, into your sort of behind the the scenes strategy here, where has it surprised you the most, just perhaps maybe on your understanding of the city before you did this, that you have gotten some uh, interest in, in your candidacy where people have said, I could 
pull a Republican ballot and vote for you in March. What was the first part again? Where has it surprised you the most that you've gotten uh, traction, if you will? Well, it doesn't surprise me, really. And my wife keeps saying that because I, I, I've taken them quite a while to analyze this thing. I didn't just willy-nilly do it. I was uh, When I'm sitting there armchair, uh, armchair quarterbacking, I'm also assessing what's going on. And I was getting a real good feel for what was happening w- within the city and the nation in general. And so I started putting two, to, two and two together. And I said, there is a real good opportunity if someone comes in with the right vision, with the right strategy, and the right message, I think people will listen to you across the board. So if you win this primary, and you move on to April, it's still going to be a really uphill battle for, for a Republican or even an independent to, mm-hmm. to beat the Democratic uh, nominee. We saw that in 2014 where an incumbent independent recorder of deeds lost to the former Democratic recorder of deeds by a landslide. So if you are blessed to move on to the next round, what message would you have to all St. Louis voters to vote for you? Well, I would want them to listen to the message. Listen to the platform. I think when you sit down and listen to it, I believe you can find that there's something for everyone to find that serves their interests. In particularly, we're talking about getting people employed. And once people have employment, that's when they can see improvement in their quality of life, standard of life. And they, can, they will see, under my administration, a reduction in crime so that people can enjoy this city. And I think that's what people are looking for across the board, regardless of party lines. Well, thank you very much for coming in here. We got a lot done in 32 minutes and 23 seconds. <laughs> for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can find all the rest of our candidate interviews on STL Public. Uh, on stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Rachel on Twitter at... At our Lipman, two P's, two N's. And how would we find out more about your campaign, either on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide well, Web? Well, the main hub, I would say, would still be to go to Andrew Jones, F-O-R, Mayor. That's Im- that's important. Some people use the word and some people use the number. You have decided to use the word. Use the word, F-O-R-Mayor.com. And I think that all the links to your social media is there. That's there. And we want to just thank you for your time and all the candidates' time. Go vote next Tuesday. Yes. Until then, so long. Maybe I just want-